we go. That's all right. I can't find First John anyways. If you have your Bibles, go with me to First John. There it is. It's after Peter. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I want to be in First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 this morning. to say uh, very quickly, um, past few weeks have been um, uh, awesome and chaotic all at the same time, uh, as we've welcomed our fifth child uh, into our family. Uh, God has been so kind to us in so many different ways, Uh, not the least giving us a girl uh, in the midst of our chaos of testosterone, um, that it's been good to keep our faith strong, most importantly, even in times where it's felt distant. God has been good. <clears throat> it's been good because of Christmas. Let me read to you 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. It says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Fathers, we muse upon the thought of Christmas and the Incarnation this morning. Father, may we, may our souls be satisfied, may our hearts delight in the good news of Your Son, Jesus, coming to this wretched earth that you created good and we marred and you're in the process of restoring, making new as you make your people new. Father, may your light shine into our darkness even this moment, even this morning, even into the corners of our hearts. Father, for your glory and our good, it's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we've been thinking about the dawning of light this Christmas for Advent, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment. I want to paint a picture, but I want you to go with me into this picture and to imagine this in your own life. Maybe you've experienced what I'm about to describe and maybe you haven't. Maybe you're currently experiencing it, or maybe you have for a season, or maybe you never have experienced 
this. But imagine you have a relationship with a friend. You say, I have lots of relationships with lots of friends, acquaintances. I I want to describe to you specifically what I mean here. A relationship where you know the deepest needs of that person. A relationship where you understand their sinful proclivities, their sinful tendencies, and they yours. A relationship where they understand the things your heart delights in, whether good or bad, idolatrous or righteous, and they yours. Like truly understand it. Not just are they able to pick out where I fail, but do they actually understand what's going on in my life, in my heart, when I am at my worst? That kind of relationship where that is true and yet within that relationship there is rest. There is peacefulness in that relationship that is undescribable. There is safety there, like where, you know, these things, I've been exposed for who I am, and yet I'm safe here, somehow. You, you, you walk away from this relationship having been maybe even rebuked for something, and yet there's joy, and you go, I don't know, that's weird. How do I have that how do I feel this way? I've just been told that my baby's ugly. And yet there's joy somehow in this relationship. Let me give you an example. One of my friends. Don't try and guess who, okay? I mean, I know I don't have very many friends, but don't try and guess who. I'm going to describe... He deeply fears man. In the moments of suffering, and much of his suffering isn't, though just at the hands of those doing foolish and sinful things, much of his suffering is because he fears man. Much of his pain is because he fears man. He longs to be accepted and longs to be wanted and longs to be approved of. Not necessarily by everybody, but those he deems worthy and wanting of their approval. Sometimes he will even change the way he really feels. Like, at least trying to convince himself he feels differently. Or maybe he'll hold back of what really needs to be said because he knows if he says it, he will be rejected. I know that this person struggles with the shame of wanting others' approval, wanting it more than he wants God's, and often even beats himself up for the very act of wanting this approval. I know that this person loves God, but often lives with these burdens upon his shoulder. I know that this person is even tempted to tell me what I want to hear just to make himself feel good with my approval that he would earn. 
listen, I, I know this person. I can predict often his actions, even his sin. Sometimes I can even see his sin when he cannot see it. I've walked with this person. I've cried with this person. I have felt his pain, and I have delighted in his righteous delights with him. Much of the same could be said of me, although the picture might look differently. I know him, and he knows me. And even though the sin is both two things, clearly known, as in it's out in the open, it's exposed, but it's also talked about regularly. Sin and repentance in this relationship is talked about in almost every conversation. And it's talked about not in a sense of, okay, I gotta muster up calm, I gotta muster up the courage to say to him what needs to be said. It just happens in casual conversation because it's a relationship like this one I'm describing. Even though the sin is clearly known and it's out in the open, it's talked about regularly, it's rebuked leg- regularly in just, pass, just passing every moment, ordinary moment, ordinary conversations, ordinary days of life, not a big event, but a part of a rhythm. And even though this is happening, there is little to no shame in this relationship. There is freedom inside this relationship. There is gospel-driven love. There is, as I described earlier, there is safety and peace, restfulness, joy, that, that you walk away going, I don't, why? Right? Like, that's weird. I should not feel this way. You see, we have a personal relationship. We have what the Scriptures would describe as fellowship. If you've been in church much of your life at all, you understand that Christians talk about fellowship all the time. Fellowship, much like the word evangelical, means very little inside Christian contexts. Because fellowship has been made to be something as simple as potluck dinners and hanging out. You see, there is freedom in this relationship to be who I am. Hear me clearly. There's freedom within this relationship to be who I am. Knowing that who I am is not defined by the sin I do. But hang with me here. Because our whole world is all wrapped up around this idea of, oh, I just got to be who I am. That's not what I'm not, I'm not saying. That What I mean is I don't have to hide my sin. I can be who I am. But who I am is in Christ. And what I do is being changed by Christ and spirit spurred on by this relationship. You see, light has been shined into my friend's darkness through my eyes and my words, 
and light into my darkness through his eyes and his words. I hope I've done justice in describing this relationship. I want to ask you the question, do you have a friendship like this? Do you have fellowship like this? You say, well, my spouse knows me pretty well. They can sure list my shortcomings. That's not what I'm talking about. Go back and re-listen to my intro thus far. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is fellowship. It is knowing someone personally, deeply, intimately, and being known personally, deeply, and intimately. It is this context in which it is, it is peaceful and restful, yet sometimes hard and dangerous even. Where what needs to be said can be said, and the conversations that need to be had can be had. And Do you have even just one relationship like this? Listen, this is the way we were meant to live, what I just described. We were meant to live this way with God. To see Him, to touch Him, to hear Him, to be in intimate, close relationship with the Father. To have fellowship with Him. To personally know eternal life and walk with eternal life Himself. But the evil darkness of our hearts said, you know what? God is not sufficient. God is not good enough. There must be more beyond this God. Listen, we all know, I think, in this room that Christmas isn't about all the traditional hoopla, even though most of us have probably gotten caught up in it it this year. But let me ask you this question. Do you know... Christmas is a yearly reminder that we get to walk with God. That we don't only get to walk with God, but that God made it possible for us to walk with God, and that it says that God wants us to walk with Him. That God came in the form of a man so that we could walk with Him, that we could see Him and touch him and hear him. That we could have the kind of relationship and beyond that I've tried to describe. You see, at Christmas, we're reminded that salvation is by grace because Jesus is eternal life. What we're going to do is we're going to work through how this relationship and what this, how this Christmas play into this and specifically the incarnation. And the first thing we need to understand is that salvation is by grace. 
You say, Matt, I know this. I know this. Okay, hang on just a second. I know it's by grace. It's not by anything I could ever do because I can never do enough good. Okay, I know most, if not all of us in this room, understand that up here. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What is John saying here about Christ, about the Christ, about eternal life? Listen, this eternal life, listen to what he says, was with the Father. Eternal life was with the Father. And this eternal life was made manifest to us. What is John talking about there? He's talking about nothing other than Jesus Christ. He's saying that Jesus Christ, hear me clearly, is himself eternal life. Listen, he is saying that as eternal life, Jesus existed eternally. Listen, nothing else has ever existed eternally other than God himself. Everything else has a starting point. God had no starting point. Jesus has existed eternally. The earth has not existed eternally. You and I and our children did not exist with the Father eternally. We were not with Him and then come to earth as babies. None of us have existed eternally. Only Christ Himself, the Father and the Spirit, have existed eternally. John says, that Jesus is called eternal life. What's John saying then about Jesus? That he is salvation itself. Listen, Jesus doesn't just point us to salvation or point us to the way to eternal life, he is eternal life itself. Jesus is God, come in the flesh, and God himself is eternal life. You say, okay, well, what is that, how does that affect what we're talking about? Listen, do you understand that to be united with God by faith in his salvific work, to, to believe in his saving work on the cross as payment for our sins and his righteous life, if, if, to be united by God by faith in that work, is to be united to eternal life himself. Notice here in this passage, it says that it was made manifest to us. Listen, what are you saying? Eternal life, or think this, salvation, being made right with God. Not just getting to heaven, but being made right with God, right here, right now. That by no doing of our own, was made manifest to us. He says, we have seen him. We have heard him. We have touched him. We have, what is he saying? We have seen eternal life. We have heard eternal life. We have touched eternal life. We have experienced eternal life. 
But notice that it was made manifest to us, meaning it was given to us. The word of life, eternal life, was given to us. We did nothing to obtain it. We did nothing to achieve it. We did nothing to qualify for it. It was a gift. Eternal life was something outside of us, made manifest to us. And none of that was done by us. Again, we live in this darkness. We were in this darkness, and this light has shined into our darkness. You say, man, I understand this. Salvation is by grace. I get that. But then why, here's the question, why do we try to get to God our own ways? Why do we? Every single person in here, every day, struggles with trying to get to God our own way. I think one of the primary ways that we do this, as I was thinking about application for us at this point, is that we try to get to God by hiding our sin. By hiding it. By suppressing our sin. By trying to convince ourselves that some of it's not there. Or that it's there and it's not really that bad. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we try to hide our sin? I mean, it's just It's just foolishness. I see this all the time. I see this in my own life. I see this in other people's lives. When we're confronted by sin, what happens? We get prideful. We don't want to hear it. We justify it away. We make excuses for it. We avoid talking to the people that will tell us what we need to hear. I thought it appropriate to dare you at this moment as we think, man, if I could take the opportunity of our natural rhythm of life and restarting after the first year, I, I dare you, if you understand that salvation is by grace, then this week or next, go to someone in this body that isn't afraid to tell you what you need to hear and ask them for their perception of your life. Do it. If you understand that grace, that salvation is by grace, then you can do that. If you don't, you can't and you won't. And if I'm being real honest, I can think of maybe four or five people in this church that might actually do it. Because we struggle to understand that salvation is by grace. That it was made manifest to us. Not of our own doing, but by God's doing. Don't begin another year denying the incarnation of Jesus by hiding your sin. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but understand that what he's describing here in this passage, this I've seen and I've touched and I've experienced this, that this understanding, this salvation by grace that has come in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that, that right there 
is what is the cause of our fellowship. And so the same can be true. If I'm not experiencing that kind of fellowship, then I'm not understanding the Incarnation. There are many of us, listen, that live in hiding, always trying to present our best wherever we go. And then, what's even more so, is that then when God exposes our sin, we just... We just try to hide it or we try to convince ourselves that that's not really what's happening. Or, or when God comes into our life and, and disciplines us because of our sin, oh, this just circumstances. Or it just happened that way. Or I happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or no, Maybe God just gave you a big whooping. Maybe God just knocked you right off your feet. But what we'll do is we'll explain it away as though it was something that just happened. Listen, God is gracious to expose us and to expose our sin. He is kind to shine light into our darkness. But when we don't understand that salvation is by grace, we will not see this as kindness. We will see this as a full assault on our pride. Like we actually believe that if I look righteous, if other people think that I'm righteous, if I can convince myself that I'm righteous, then I must be righteous. And so we don't live in honest reality, humble, honest reality. We live in hiding, in prideful hiding. Listen, in the incarnation, it says here in 1 John that He came. We heard Him. We saw Him with our eyes. We touched Him with our hands. And that salvation was made manifest to us, not of our own doing. Listen, we can know eternal life Himself. Because the incarnation, and because of the incarnation, we can have fellowship with God. Because Christ come in the flesh, we can have fellowship with God. So that relationship that I began describing, that I began painting the picture of, we can have that with God. How? Because of the incarnation. But we often live as though eternal life is found in something other than Jesus, right? Eternal life, for many of us, is found in one of the following. My relationship with my children, looking a certain way. That when that is that, I feel good. I feel fulfilled. I have joy when these ideals are being met within my relationships with other people. Or eternal life is found. My, again, my joy is wrapped up in my bills playing out in a certain fashion. Or maybe more broadly speaking, that thing that causes my anxiety, if I can just keep that at bay. Right? Because that which 
drives our joy is that which we're finding salvation in. Let me ask you a question. As I thought about like this, we try to get to God our own ways, I thought I should ask this question too. Do we even want to get to God? Like, do you even want to get to God? Like when you hear, like when they talk about, I, I have seen, we have touched, we have heard. Like does that even do anything to your affections? Like, do you want to have fellowship with God? Do you want to walk with God in the cool of the morning? Do you want to feel God's love and care? Do you want to know that you are welcomed and accepted into His presence? Do you want to be embraced as a child, never to be let go? Do you want to hear Him? Do you want to touch Him? Do you want to see Him? Do you even want to? the intimacy of being known and knowing someone else where shame is gone and grace abounds. Just that. Even begin to move your affections. Listen, John is saying here, all the stories that you have read and heard about God coming in the flesh, John is saying right here, we have seen it. We've touched it. We've heard it. We walked with Him. He walked with us. These Christmas stories you've heard, Listen, he knew us deeply. He saw our fragility. He saw our sin and our shame. He knew the depths of our struggles. He knew the sin that lurked behind each corner of our hearts. He knew the depths of our depravity. And yet, we could touch him. And yet, we could walk with him. And yet, He walked with us. We fellowshiped with Him. Even though He knew the depths of our sin greater than we could ever understand ourselves. And we've seen Him. And we touched Him. And we saw Him. We heard him. In verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, Christmas means that we can walk with God. Christmas means that we can walk with those who walk with God. Let me be quick to remind us here. Fellowship is about, as one person said, deep, intimate, and multidimensional bonding. It's deep. It's intimate. It's complex. It's dynamic. 
Fellowship is more than just some people with common interests getting together. Fellowship is about walking in repentance and faith and the joy of the Lord together. John is saying that those who believe in Christ can enter, hear me, into the same personal communion with God that the apostles and others had who say they saw and heard and knew Jesus personally. Do you understand what I just said? John is saying that we can have the same kind of fellowship both with each other and with God that those who knew Jesus personally had. I think about this fellowship with God. I think all of us probably fall into one of these three categories. For many of us, God is a very impersonal God. He's a distant power that comes into our lives and leaves just as quickly as the next distraction comes. God is very impersonal. He's he's just kind of a force that I should appeal to. Second category is those who think you know Him personally, but maybe don't. I know some of you are like, oh, look, I, I talk to God all day. I say my prayers. I see His beauty in the sky. I've been walking with Him for X amount of years. I walk with God, and He's personal to me. So how can I, how can I, how can I help you, how can we help decipher is if this is what we're talking about in this passage. And I think the best way could help with this is to say this. If your walk, this so-called relationship with God, doesn't involve regular repentance every day and walking by faith, then you're not walking with God. You're walking with a fantasy of God that you have created yourself. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That's that's one of the biggest implications of this passage. We've seen, we've touched, we've heard eternal life itself. What's the implication? We needed it. That's the implication. That's what's being said without being said. Is that you were headed for destruction Because of your sinfulness, you needed, we needed eternal life Himself to be made manifest to us in order for us to have fellowship with God. And so how does a Christian respond? Repentance and faith. So listen, if your supposed personal walk with God doesn't look like regular repentance every day, even multiple times a day, then you're not walking with God. You're walking with a fantasy of God that you have created yourself. 
would also add in there, are you walking in the Word? Are you abiding in the Word as Jesus describes it? Not just remembering Bible stories you heard from 20 years ago, but regularly walking with Him in the Scriptures. If you're not, then you are not walking with God personally. You're walking with past thoughts, however delightful they might be. If there's not praying along with your diligent study, or you're speaking to God as you study Him, then it's not personal walking with God. It's more of an academic exercise. My fear is that some of us are in this camp and don't realize that we're in this camp. That we think we're walking with God. Maybe if I could help describe the emotional side of this experience, it might look like this. The fleeting joy you experience is not the joy of fellowship with God, but is the joy of ignorant bliss fueled by the suppressing and hiding of the reality of your darkness. Let me say that again. It's really easy for us to be confused, thinking I'm walking with God. Because I have little pockets of joy here and there. But the point of this passage is that our joy would be, what, complete. I want to describe this joy a little bit later, but that this joy would be present. But what we know is that it shouldn't be fleeting. So what's going on, maybe, for some of us, if our joy is fleeting? It could be because our joy is not from fellowship with God. But instead, for a few moments, we're joyful because... We have bliss that's been caused by ignorance or the suppressing of our darkness. But John's saying like, we saw him, we heard him, we walked with him. This God, he knew us and yet we got to see him and touch him. There was not this hiding of sin or suppressing of the reality of their darkness. No, we're exposed. He knew us, but we still touched Him and heard Him. Third category. Genuinely knowing Him personally. Let me give you an illustration. This will... Seem certainly in place given the events of my life recently. As a man, for the past nine months, I've known that there is a child in my wife's belly. In a, obviously a little bit different way, or maybe a big different way, uh, a very different way, rather, than my wife. I know that this child is mine. Like, my experience is different. As in, I'm not carrying this child, but I know that this child is mine, and I'm just beginning to get to know 
her. Of course, for the past nine months, I didn't know it was a her. But then when she is born, now I know her more, right? I don't only know that she was a girl and I had to look twice when this happened, right? Wait a second. But now I know her face, right? Now I see her face. I see her wrinkles on her head and the color of her hair. I got to hear her cry. And as all of my children grow, I learn what they love. And I learn what they hate. I, I discover what moves a child's heart. And it's different for each child. I get to learn what squashes their hearts and their desires. Listen, you get to learn with your child what kind of hug they need. For some, it's a, one of my kids is just a big old hug and like they don't want to let go. For others, it's a, all right, I just need to, one, you know, for a couple seconds, then I go run off. And if you know my children, you can probably guess which one is which. You begin to learn what kind of physical touch that child needs. For some, it's, you know, rub me on the back of the head. For others, it's scratch my back. For others, like my, my eldest, still, we walk through the grocery store or the, wherever we went the other day, just the two of us, and he wanted to hold my hand the whole time. Honestly, I felt awkward. I'm like, and then I'm like, stop it. This isn't going to last forever. But that's what he needs. And I know that of him. And in that moment, I could have very quickly, right, succumbed to something else instead of loving what my child needed in that moment. He didn't know he needed that. He didn't know consciously that what he needed. But I know that of him. Why? Because I'm in relationship with him. I have a very personal relationship with my children, each one, in very specific ways. By God's grace, I'm growing and knowing this very specific applications of discipline in each of my children. As they are all very different, they respond differently to different forms of discipline. But how do we know this? How do we know this? Why? Because I'm in deep, personal relationship with my child. For some of us, that describes the kind of relationship we're in with God. You see, because the incarnation means that God can be known personal. Know him, not just know about him. See, most of you know a lot about my newest child, but you don't know her personally. For many of us, we know about God, but we don't know him personally. 
But Christmas means he came to be known. Listen, when you see the manger and you see the baby laid, you need to think, tonight, tomorrow, every other day, that this simple but profound reality that God came to commune with His people. That He came to love, to walk, to hold, to cherish His people. He's not some distant force to acknowledge every once in a while. Right? Moses was told that God's glory would kill him. But John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Wow. So it was one thing to have known my daughter in the womb. It's a different thing to know her in the flesh. God came in Christ in the flesh so that we could know Him deeply. And so that we, amongst each other, could be known ourselves deeply by others. Listen, to know God personally is not just some checklist. Oh, well, I believe these facts. Or, well, I see His beauty in creation. Or, I say some prayers each day. Or, I have my five-minute devotional with Oswald Chambers. To know God personally, means you must, must, must immerse yourself in His Word. You must be discipled in the Word and discipled within fellowship. Listen, if you're not doing that, then you're not walking with God personally. You just can't. Jesus says, abide in me. How do we abide in Him? He's the Word. The Word made flesh. We abide in Him as we abide in the revelation of Him. Why? Because the incarnation is captured in the Word of God and lived out and experienced, if you will, in the body of Christ. Hinting a little bit here at the future, our joy is made complete when we fellowship with God and others in the body. Look at verse 3 to 4. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Listen, when you see Christ in the Word... We see the beauty of God in ways that creation couldn't even begin to describe. Listen, a flower doesn't tell us how humble God is. The stars don't tell us how near to us God is. 
God is all wise and he is compassionate. And when you see Christ in the scriptures, you see these characteristics of God personified, particularly as you read the gospels. You see God in the flesh interacting and living in the midst of darkness for the good of his people, communing and walking with them. You cannot commune with God personally if you're not living in the scriptures daily. You just can't. Listen, as you see his characteristics personified in the word, as you know him through the scriptures and experience him then in life, these facts about God become no longer simply theological abstractions. They become realities. You no longer know of God, but you know God. The incarnation means that God can be known personally. The incarnation means that God has removed everything necessary for us to once again, but this time without fail, walk with Him. To know Him in the cool of the morning. To walk with Him through the heat and the trials of the day. Timothy Keller said this, the incarnation Christmas means that God is not content to be simply a concept or just someone you know from a distance. As in knowing God personally is made possible at Christmas. But it's also a challenge to us to do what it takes to know Him personally. To walk with Him daily. You see, the the salvation is done by God. Then the walking with Him daily and regularly by the Spirit, we have to discipline ourselves to do so. I'm not going back on what we say. The salvation is by grace. And then we live out that experience. We live out the realities of that salvation by grace by wanting to know Him. Listen, that's one of the ways we can tell whether or not we understand that salvation is by grace. Does it drive me to want to walk with Him? Does it drive me to want to learn His words, to know about Him in the Scriptures? If not, then I'm not understanding that salvation is by grace, that the God of the universe has been made manifest to us not by any of our doing but by God's glorious plan. The last thing I want you to see this morning is that knowing God personally and being known within community makes our joy complete. You know that thing that the whole world is after particularly? Uh, well, it's, all, it's after all year long, but it's verbalized this time of year. Joy to the world, Everyone wants cheer, Christmas cheer, and happiness, peacefulness. It's only possible in personally knowing God and fellowshipping with the body. Look at 4, verse 4. 
And we are writing these things, right? We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In other words, what is John saying? My joy will be complete when you have the same joy in fellowship with God and each other that we do. John 16, verse 22, says this is the gospel of John, not the letter of John. But in 16, verse 22, he says this, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your joy from you. So so the idea of this joy is not one of fleeting joy, but one of overwhelming joy. Listen, I see joyless or at best people with fleeting joy in this church all the time. Here's here's what I want to do. I want to describe a few examples here. But I don't want you to think big events of my life. I want you to think normal, ordinary events, like normal, ordinary life, the mundane, when I describe these things. Oh, I wanted a certain life event to look this way. I wanted to go do something or see something, and I didn't get what I wanted. And all of a sudden, your joy is gone. Your joy is fleeing your presence. Or so-and-so wouldn't do what I think they should do. They wouldn't let me have influence in their lives. And poof, your joy is gone. Man, I don't know. There's just too much going on. I'm I'm just too stressed. People are demanding way too much of me. And your joy is gone. Man, if these people would just think this way about me, and they don't. Joy is gone. This joy being made complete is not a joy that's found in our jobs. It's not a joy found in our relationships. It's not a, a joy found in any place other than God. Our joy, this joy is supposed to be unshakable. And yet, I watch, even in my own life, people walk away from conversations or see people respond in conversations often like their joy is sand in the midst of their fingers slipping right through. Keller said this, joy is like the ballast that keeps a ship stable and upright in the water. Another way to think about joy is this. When we build houses in this area, there's this thing called a frost line. It's like 32 inches below the ground. What they mean is that the the ground can freeze to those kinds of depths in the coldest parts of winter. And if you put your house right on top, somewhere within that 32 inches, as the ground freezes, it literally can lift your entire house almost an inch every single year or lift parts of your house within just 
months. We're talking an average like 1,400 square foot house is something like 20 to 30,000 pounds. And it can lift that over the course of a winter. But if you put the foundation of the house below where it freezes, where the ground is not disturbed with the circumstances of the weather, then the house is unmovable. The circumstances can't touch it. That's what joy is. Psalm says it this way in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Listen, this house built not on sand, but in the depths of the earth where it is firm. Joy, again, is like this ballast that stays in the hull of a ship that keeps the ship steady. Just like that. Someone's joy is found in the Lord. He will always be steady. He will always be firm. No matter the circumstances. Think of it this way. Joy is not something that you hold on to and you grasp for. Joy should be something that holds you. Something that keeps your heart steady. Listen, the joy of Christmas brings the assurance of God's love and care. But here's the question. How do we know if we're truly believing the assurance of God's love and care this Christmas? Here's how. This joy in the assurance of God's love and care for us, that He would come so that we could know Him and that we would experience Him knowing us. The joy of that assurance of God's love and care leads us to repentance and faith, not to ignorance and suppression. It leads us to say, well, if you love and care me that much, then here is all of it. Take it from me. I can't bear it anymore. Why would we ever ignore it or suppress it if he's that good at dealing with it? Listen, someone who ignores it or suppresses it, which is all of us, by the way, is not someone walking in joy. That's someone walking in willful, ignorant bliss, calling the fleeting joy we have as joy from God. Why not, let me ask you this, why not this Christmas do this? I'm going to do this tomorrow. Why not sit around the tree before opening presents? Why don't you spend time confessing your sin? Why don't you spend time in repentance and faith together before the throne of Almighty God? Why don't you do that? I don't care what it looks like. It could even be like all of you quietly saying very little and spending more of your time personally praying, quietly praying. 
why not say before your family, you know what? I've been sinning this way against you. Would you forgive me? Listen, if, if the incarnation means that God loves and cares for you, then that should be easy. Easy. If you want a measure for how much your heart knows and believes that God loves and cares for you and has shown you that in the incarnation, if you want a measuring device, look tomorrow and see how easy it is for you to confess your sins before others. Be like a temperature gauge stuck right into the core of your heart. Listen, when you have joy from knowing the assurance of God's love and care come in the flesh to be displayed for you and the world to see and for His children to touch, when you have that kind of joy, you run to that kind of person. Listen, Christmas reminds us of God's love and care. And when we are reminded of His love and care, we run to Him for care. The last thing I want you to see is that Christmas reminds us that it is through simple, meager means that we experience this joy. It's through simple, meager means that we experience this Joy Keller said this, I would like to argue that we often fail to experience this Christian joy because the means to achieving it are so ordinary. And we want extraordinary. We want the spectacle. 1 John 1, 1 says this, Our hands have touched. Our hands have touched. Listen, how could the untouchable become touchable? How could the unapproachable become approachable? That's the heart of the Christmas message. He became a man. He became something not spectacular. He was the God and is the God of the universe, the one who spoke the world into existence. And instead of, as if he could, become something greater, he becomes something much less. He becomes a man. It's like saying Mount Everest was transformed into a pebble stuck in the bottom of my shoe. That God, the creator of the world, would become a man. Jesus did not come in royal garb, nor was he born in the royal places of man or the temple even he came in rags and was born in a stable he was a homeless refugee he came in under oppression again we though want a spectacle we want something that's spectacular ordinary and commonness is oftentimes offensive to us And it certainly is to this world. Everyone wants to stand out. 
It's the marvelous and the powerful that stand out, not the poor and the oppressed. We want to be the ones to make it all happen. We want to earn our way into God's presence. We want to make our own path. We want to wash our own feet before the Savior even touches them. Listen, the fact that we could live a terrible life and then God could give us faith to believe in His Son and all our debt be wiped clean, that's just too simple. There's got to be more to it than that, we say to ourselves. We want faith to be something that only the elite Christians can accomplish. You know, the ones who already have it together. Right? The ones who already carry their Bibles. Right? The people who have nice little houses and drive decent cars. The good moral people. That's the ones who get salvation. Because their life is already a bit of a spectacle. But what happens? Christ came in weakness. Christ came in smallness to save not the proud, not those with a higher probability of choosing Him, but those who admit they are also weak, small, and those who admit they need a Savior. Let me quote Keller again. He says this, The Christian life begins not with high deeds and achievements, but with the most simple and ordinary act of humble asking. Will you save me? Then, the life and joy grow in us over the years through commonplace almost boring practices. Like daily obedience in all the various arenas in which God has placed your life. Reading and praying. Worshiping with your brothers and sisters. Serving your brothers and sisters. Serving your neighbors, even the ones who don't know Christ. Remember the ones who don't know Him personally. Another boring, almost boring practice is looking to Christ during suffering. This is how life and joy grow. It's one little step at a time that our faith grows and our foundation grows more deeply rooted and planted in the right soil. It grows and grows. Listen, to know God personally, to know God personally, let me remind you that the way in which most of this relationship is experienced is in this relationship out here. The vertical and the horizontal. To know God personally is to walk in openness where our sin is exposed, where light is shining. To walk with God is to walk in safety where our sin can be dealt with rightly. 
To walk with God personally is to walk in peacefulness, knowing that we are not at war with God any longer. We have been made to have peace with God because we're no longer His enemies, but bought by the blood of Christ, His blood for our sins. We now are at peace with God. We walk that way And to know God personally is to walk in rest, knowing that our brokenness has been dealt with. Listen, Christmas means that we get to walk with God. We get to commune with God. We get to know Him personally. Christmas means that we get to fellowship with each other in intimacy. And we get to fellowship with the Holy Creator of the world. How? Because one day, eternal life himself will lay down his life for the very sin that separates us from our Father. And what John is telling us here is that when we, by faith, are united to this God in the flesh come to die on the cross for our sins. When we, by faith, believe that and are united with Him, we have fellowship with each other in a whole new way. And we have fellowship with the Father because Jesus came in the flesh to lay down his life. And when this happens, John is saying, our joy is made complete. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your marvelous work of sending your son, the incarnate God, Father, for sending not just someone like the prophets before who would point to salvation, but Father, thank you for sending salvation himself, eternal life himself, the word of life himself. Father, thank you for sending him because that was the only thing that would do. It's the only thing that would work to rescue us. Father, the baby in the manger is also our rescuer. Father, thank you for sending him that we can come out of hiding. Because in the incarnation we see that you have come to dwell with your people and you have made the way possible through the death of your son in which you deal with our sins. Every last one of them. And you deal with them eternally. Like moving forward, it's all dealt with because of the blood of your son so that we might commune with you forever. But give us the faith to believe these things this Christmas. 
Give us the faith to understand your word and to hold them deep in our hearts so that joy might be the ballast that steadies our ship in the midst of such a dangerous and dark place. Father, for the light of the world has come that we might behold your glory in his face. May we run to you today, tomorrow, and every day going forward in a new way as we see the baby in the manger laid as the God come in the flesh to rescue us and to bring glory to your name. Father, for it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you?